guys. I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free educational resource and you'd like to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to members-only episodes and other prizes. The latest Patreon episode explores why the days of the week in Portuguese are different from the days of the week in all of the other Romance languages. But prizes aside, you get to walk away with the satisfaction of knowing that you're directly helping to sustain the output of this independent show. Every little bit adds up, so if you're so inclined, go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted to find out more. Or just go to my website, wordsforgranted.com, and you can link from there. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout out to The World in Words, another podcast about words and language. The show covers a wide range of topics from bilingual education to Icelandic insults and everything else in between. They've got a massive back catalog that should keep you busy for a while. All of the episodes are great, and I think you'll really love the show. Okay, let's get on to today's episode. Last time, we wrapped up a mini-series on the days of the week. Based on listener feedback, you guys really seem to like the mini-series format, so I'm going to jump right into another one. This time, we'll be looking at English words derived from Arabic. But before we look at any specific words, I want to give you a bit of background regarding Arabic itself, so that will be the main focus of this episode. When I took a survey via my mailing list about what the next mini-series should be about, Arabic etymologies was the clear winner. However, as I began writing this episode, I realized that Kevin Stroud's History of English podcast has recently covered similar material. So, if you're all caught up on Kevin's podcast and are wondering if I'm just going to reiterate everything he already said, the answer is no. Due to some necessary exposition that I'll need to provide over the course of this series, there will be some crossover of content, but generally speaking, I intend to take things in my own direction. In today's episode in particular, I'll be emphasizing some of the more technical linguistic differences between Arabic and English. So, why are we dedicating an entire mini-series to this theme? Well, to put it simply, Arabic words are everywhere in day-to-day -day English. For some of you, this may come as a surprise. Certainly, there are many histories of English out there in the form of books, videos, and documentaries that gloss over this topic altogether. Obviously, the History of English podcast is an exception. Now, make no mistake... Arabic's influence on English isn't quite in the same league as that of, say, Old Norse, French, or Latin. These three languages actually changed the way we speak English. They changed English grammar and English syntax. 
Arabic can make no such claim because, historically, the language was never spoken by people living in close proximity to England, and thus the two languages never intermingled in a way where such drastic changes could take place. Today, there are native Arabic speakers who live in predominantly English-speaking countries and vice versa, but these circumstances are a product of modern globalism. However, during the Middle Ages, which is the time period during which most of this miniseries is going to take place, the English language encountered Arabic through mostly secondhand sources, primarily Spanish and Turkish. Consequently, Arabic's greatest contribution to English is lexical. In other words, Arabic gave English a new vocabulary. Like I've already said, speakers of English use tons of Arabic-derived words on a regular basis. Alcohol, algebra, algorithm, assassin, chemistry, sugar, sofa, mattress, lemon, orange, serendipity, and zero are just a few. Some of these words, such as sugar, sofa, mattress, lemon, and orange, among many others not listed here, describe commodities brought to Europe by Arab merchants. Others, such as algebra, algorithm, chemistry, and zero, also among many others not listed here, describe intellectual innovations brought to Europe by Arab scholars and philosophers. Broadly speaking, scholarship and trade are the two main categories of Arabic words that entered European languages during the Middle Ages. As we look at specific etymologies in the upcoming episodes, we'll get into greater historical detail regarding the contact between the Arab and Western worlds. English has borrowed a handful of Arabic words in more recent times, too, but these words tend to be associated with food or war and terrorism. In the post-9-11 world, words like jihad and sharia have come into English discourse as highly politicized terms. The English definition of jihad is basically a holy war fought in the name of Islam, but in reality, a literal translation of the word from Arabic is struggle or effort. The word jihad actually appears in the Quran many times without a violent or militaristic connotation at all. It particularly appears in reference to struggles with one's own evils or struggles along the path to God. Indeed, there is a militaristic aspect to the word within Arabic itself, and there has been for centuries, but to narrowly define the word as a holy war in English shows the cultural bias of the West. Actually, the word jihad was known in English from as long ago as the Crusades, but it fell out of usage and was revived again in the 21st century. If we take into account terms used in medicine, botany, cuisine, and other fields containing specialized vocabulary, estimates of the number of Arabic loanwords in English range between 3 and 4,000. Those are hefty numbers, so this miniseries won't even begin to scratch the surface. I'll just be handpicking a couple of words whose histories I find particularly interesting. Okay, 
enough of this introductory rambling. Let's get into a cultural and linguistic overview of Arabic itself. Where does the language come from? Who were its original speakers? What are some of its linguistic characteristics? Arabic has quite a different story from most of the languages we've discussed on this show thus far, and I'm excited to share a small bit of it with you. Although English has borrowed words from Arabic, and Arabic has borrowed words from English too, these two languages are fundamentally different. They belong to different families. Now, when I say different families, I'm not implying anything metaphorical here. I'm literally talking about language families. In linguistics, a language family is a group of languages that are all descended from a common ancestral tongue. English belongs to the Indo-European family. So do German, Greek, Italian, French, Spanish, Russian, Hindi, Urdu, Farsi, and hundreds of other languages, both living and dead. If we trace all of these Indo-European languages back in time far enough, we arrive at a single mother tongue. That single mother tongue is called Proto-Indo-European, so named because it is the progenitor of most of the languages ranging from India to Europe. Arabic, on the other hand, belongs to the Semitic language family. In addition to Arabic, the Semitic language family comprises other languages such as Amharic, Tigrinya, Hebrew, and Aramaic, plus historically significant dead languages such as Akkadian, Phoenician, and Canaanite. If we trace all of these languages back in time far enough, we arrive at a single mother tongue called Proto-Semitic. Most of you have probably heard the word Semitic before, but it probably had a different meaning. In a general sense, Semitic is a word most often associated with Judaism, most commonly used in the term anti-Semitism, which of course means a hatred of Jews. However, in linguistics, the term Semitic describes the family of genetically related languages spoken by the alleged descendants of the biblical figure Shem. Shem was one of Noah's three sons, and his descendants are believed to have spread throughout the Near and Middle East. Indeed, his descendants do include Jews, but they also include peoples that would later on identify as Arabs. Whether or not you believe Shem was a real person is besides the point. The term Semitic attributes a shared linguistic origin to the majority of peoples of the Near East and Middle East, it's a culturally complex term since not all people who speak Semitic languages are ethnically Semitic, but the term has been around for a while and the field of linguistics is just stuck with it at this point. The main thing I want you to take away from this exposition about language families is that Arabic is really foreign to English. Sure, Latin, French, and Norse are foreign to English, but at the end of the day, all four of them are Indo-European languages. In spite of their differences, they all have inherent similarities, especially in the building blocks of vocabulary, a.k.a. root words. 
Sometimes, the similarities between English and other Indo-European languages can lurk in unsuspecting places. Consider the words father and paternal, both of which describe a man in relation to his child. Father is a native English word, and paternal is a loan word borrowed from French. At a glance, these words might not look like close etymological cousins, but they actually derive from a single Proto-Indo-European root word, pachter, meaning father. This is an arbitrary example, but I think it illustrates my point. Anyway, no such hidden relationships exist between native English words and foreign Arabic words. The words that English has inherited from Arabic brought completely new blood into the language. Now, when we speak of Arabic as a single monolithic language, it's a bit misleading. The general term Arabic actually encompasses three variants within the language, Classical Arabic, Modern Standard Arabic, and Dialectal Arabic. Classical Arabic is the language of the Quran and other literary texts composed between the 7th and 9th centuries BCE. It was, and still is, the official liturgical language of Islam. Remarkably, this ancient version of the language still can be read by educated speakers of Arabic today. This is because the meanings of Arabic words and the script used to write them have remained remarkably intact over the span of over 1,500 years. On the contrary, the meaning of English words flip-flop from generation to generation. That's pretty much the premise of this entire podcast. Words for granted wouldn't exactly be able to exist if the language we were examining were Arabic. Modern Standard Arabic is the direct descendant of Classical Arabic, and it's the form of the language used in most media publications, speeches, and political meetings. With the exception of some modernized rules of grammar and syntax, it's very similar to its ancient predecessor. These two versions of the language are often classified together as literary Arabic. All Arabic-majority nations formally teach modern standard Arabic in school, and the significance of this cannot be overstated. Arabic is the national language of over 200 million people in 22 different countries, and each of these countries has its own colloquial dialects of the language, some of which are mutually unintelligible. The Arabic spoken on the streets of Morocco sounds very different from the kind of Arabic spoken on the streets of Yemen. However, the formally enforced rules of modern standard Arabic solves this problem of intelligibility across borders. This unique linguistic phenomenon is called diglossia. Linguist Charles Ferguson defines diglossia as, quote, a language situation in which in addition to the primary dialects of the language, there is a very divergent, highly codified, superposed variety, the vehicle of a large and respected body of written literature, either of an earlier period or in another speech community, which is learned largely by formal education and is used for most written and formal spoken purposes, but is not used by any section of the community for ordinary conversation." 
end quote. That's a long-winded definition, but it gets the point across. Nothing like this exists in English, or in most languages for that matter. The main differences among the varieties of English, such as American English, British English, Australian English, etc., are in pronunciation and idiomatic words and expressions. However, as an American, I don't need to learn and then speak a special dialect of the language in order to communicate with someone from England or Australia. We all understand one another. For those of you familiar with the sociolinguistic history of Europe, the role of standard Arabic among Arab nations today may seem a lot like the role of classical Latin in Western Europe through as late as the 17th century. In some ways, this is an accurate parallel, and in other ways, it isn't. So I'd like to take a moment to clarify this. Most people living in Arab nations today go through compulsory modern standard Arabic education, whereas in medieval Europe, Latin education was limited to the clergy and upper class. In this regard, modern standard Arabic, or MSA for short, is more universal and egalitarian than medieval Latin ever was. Also, the Latin language was never tied to the notion of ethnic unity, whereas MSA, which is taught in countries as far apart as Saudi Arabia and Algeria, definitely is. However, if we remove class and ethnicity from the equation, then Latin and MSA are actually quite similar. Both serve as high dialects used in the realm of international affairs, and both are inseparably linked to religion, Latin to Christianity and Arabic to Islam. In the context of this analogy, it's seemingly appropriate to equate the Romance languages to the colloquial variants of dialectal Arabic. I don't speak Arabic, let alone various dialects of it, but apparently with a few exceptions, regional Arabic dialects are about as mutually intelligible as the Romance languages are. However, like the parallel between Classical Latin and MSA, it's not a perfect equivalence. The main difference between the two is based in history. The Romance languages evolved out of Latin due to the collapse of standardized Latin education, whereas MSA education is taught as a way of dealing with the pre-existing situation of divergent dialects. Depending on a given social situation or the intention of the speaker, Arabic speakers often code-switch back and forth between standard and dialectal forms of the language. Code-switching is actually the technical linguistic term for this. Obviously, standard Arabic is formal and universal, whereas dialectal Arabic is more casual and intimate. While we're on the topic of linguistic technicalities, I might as well mention the unique characteristic of Arabic root words, or should I say, root letters. In Arabic and other Semitic languages, Consonantal roots, as they're called, are a group of consonants in a particular order that forms the basis of many words. Actual words are formed from these letters by filling in the spaces with different vowel sounds and by adding prefixes and suffixes. 
the different words formed around a single set of root consonants are semantically tied together to a single theme or idea. Let's look at a quick example of how this works. Consider the Arabic words salam, Islam, and Muslim. What do these words have in common? Well, if you listen closely, they all share the letters S, L, and M in that order. So this group of letters is their root. Salam, Islam, and Muslim. The first M in Muslim is an addition to this root, so don't let that throw you off. So what do these words mean? You all probably know what Islam and Muslim mean in their conventional sense, but what do they literally mean? Let's start with the less English-friendly term salam. Salam means peace. Islam literally means submission to God, and in the context of Islamic belief, submission to God is the ultimate pathway to peace. Muslim literally means one who has submitted to God. And again, in the context of Islam, a Muslim is literally one who has achieved or is striving for peace. So religious, political, and cultural beliefs aside, the actual semantic root of the very familiar words Muslim and Islam is actually peace. Okay. These are just a few of the basic, unique linguistic aspects of Arabic. Again, I've decided to take this more technical approach because it's a little bit different than the material that's already out there in the world of pop linguistics podcasts. In the upcoming episodes, you won't necessarily need to know about the three versions of Arabic or how the language builds words from a consonantal root system, but when else would I have the opportunity to share this stuff with you? I think it's interesting, especially if your only exposure to foreign languages has been to Indo-European languages. As I get into the etymologies of individual words beginning next week, I'll provide the historical exposition needed to tell those particular stories. But for a sweeping overview of how the Arabic-speaking Islamic world came into contact with the Western world, I'm going to just recommend episodes 90 and 91 of the History of English podcast. This is not because I'm lazy, but because the work's already been done, I won't necessarily do it better, and I know that so many of you are also regular listeners of the History of English podcast. All right, spiel time. If you loved today's episode, please leave a positive review and rating over at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast directory you use. These reviews really help the show grow. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to reach out to me directly at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter as at wordsforgranted, and I'm on Facebook too. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted.